All right, let's uh, have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin this evening here in Acts chapter 9. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask your blessing upon us this evening as we turn again to the book of Acts. We ask that you'll, through the work of the Spirit, illuminate our minds and hearts to the truth of God's Word, and we might be challenged and and uh, in our own Christian lives to be more conformed to what we see in Scripture, and we might be more effective in our service for you, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we are looking at... Uh, Acts, and we had been looking at chapters 6, 8 through 9, 31. We finished that. We looked at the critical events in the lives of three pivotal figures, Stephen, Philip, and Saul of Tarsus. Now we're ready to look at 9, 32 through 12, 24, the last major section here that we'll be covering next few weeks. And that is... Uh, First of all, the ministry of Peter in Maritime Plain of Palestine, 932 through 43. Uh, as I say here uh, on the notes under C here, advances of the gospel in Palestine, Syria, it was important for Luke to show how the church accepted uncircumcised Gentiles as Christians before Paul's missionary journeys could be properly understood. So we're going to see how Peter brings the gospel to Cornelius. First of all, we see the ministry of Peter in the plain of Palestine, 932 through 43. This is Peter here, and he's going to go over to Lydda here. This is the plain here. We're talking about along the seacoast here. Um... 9.32, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. Um, as I say here, the last time we hear of Peter is in 8.25. Uh, chapter 8 and verse 25. Uh, this was when Peter and John had come up to Samaria after Philip had evangelized that area. Remember, he, they laid hands on them. There was a demonstration that these people had the Holy Spirit and so forth, and Peter stayed, and Peter and John went through the villages of Samaria. That was 925. Now we see Peter again. So apparently Peter, as we'll see, seems to be more of a kind of an itinerant missionary. Remember, the, the Roman Catholic Church has him as the Pope, you know, the, the Bishop of Rome and so forth. Of course, there's no evidence that he was ever... He was he. This was true or anything. Tradition says that he was crucified in Rome, and that's probably true. But he's not, you know, in Rome in the Book of Acts. He's nowhere in Rome or anything like that. He's not even running the Jerusalem church, um, as we'll see. It's really James um, who is sort of heading up, sort of the pastor of the Jerusalem church. Peter seems to be more of an itinerant missionary. He seems to be going around spreading the gospel in Palestine and so forth. And so that's what we see here again. He's visiting the people here in Lydda. Lydda's about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Israel's a small country. 
doesn't take long if you've been over there to get from the, the Galilee to Jerusalem. You, you easily drive it. You know, it's not not, not that big of a place. And uh, so uh, he's traveling around with the Lord's people. We're not told how they became believers here. I mentioned it just says he's visiting the Lord's people. So remember, Luke doesn't always tell us how people got evangelized. These people were already believers. Perhaps they received the gospel from people on the day of Pentecost. Perhaps some of these were people who fled during the persecution during the time of Stephen. We don't know exactly how the gospel got out there, but there are a number of possibilities. Um, So uh, Aeneas, uh, there, verse 33, he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up, and all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Then we see uh, Joppa. Here's Joppa on the map, as you can see, around the coast here. Uh, Joppa is about uh, 10 miles north northwest uh, there of Lydda, about 35 miles from Jerusalem here. And so uh, in Joppa, there was a man, uh, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. And she was always doing good and helping the poor. Uh, Tabitha Aramaic name, and as I say here, Dorcas is the Greek. Both mean something like gazelle or deer. So here's uh, Joppa. Joppa is near Tel Aviv. There's not really anything left of ancient uh, Joppa today to speak of, except uh, we'll see a church here. But So Joppa's right on the coast, just a suburb today of Tel Aviv. Here's uh, so-called St. Peter's Church. That's about the only much archaeology remains. This was a church that, you know, commemorates where Peter uh, has his vision, as we'll see in a moment, when he's looking out to the sea and he has his vision. There's a church there. This church doesn't go back to Peter's time. This church is much later. But, theoretically, it's on the built on the remains of an older church, so it might be the site. We don't. It's hard to know. Um, we, many of these traditions are probably true, because... Uh, you know, people would not have forgotten where some of these events took place, just like us. Are we going to forget where the World Trade Center was? I mean, are we going to forget that? You know, um, are we going to, you know, some of these memorial events, these memorable events, you're not going to forget where they are, even though <coughs> the World Trade Center was destroyed. You're, you're going to remember where it was at. And so uh, Christians would remember a lot of these early sites and it would be passed down. So it may be that many of these places are correct, that this was the general location of where these things happened. Um, so uh, there's this disciple. About that time, verse 37, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the, windows, all the widows stood around him, 
crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Um, so Peter uh, uh, is, uh, is at Lydda and then at Joppa here and uh, travels over to Joppa. Um, he goes upstairs, verse 39, and uh, he arrives. He, he uh, sees them crying and so forth. He sends them out of the room. And uh, he turned down, uh, then he turned, got down on his knees, prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, seeing Peter, she sat up. He stood by, uh, he stood her by the, took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented to them to her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. So all this is sort of setting up for their Cornelius incident. It's telling us interesting data about Peter. Uh, Peter raising someone from the dead, like Jesus did. Paul raises somebody from the dead. Those are the two mentioned in the New Testament. This is an unusual occurrence. They're not raising people from the dead every day. So it's it's not the common everyday thing. But this is all sort of setting the scene here. This is telling us how Peter got over to Joppa and ultimately then how he gets to Caesarea. And Luke mentions this interesting fact that Peter is staying with a tanner named Simon. As I say here, the rabbis considered tanning an unclean trade because you are dealing with animals, dead animals, and so forth. You've got the prohibitions, you know, about dead animals and so forth in the Old Testament, various kinds of animals. I I say here, Peter's lodging with such a man suggests that Peter himself was not overly scrupulous in observing Jewish ceremonial traditions. It's difficult to know why this was. Why would Peter sort of violate some of these Old Testament? Is he just a person who is not overly scrupulous and why is he not over why is he not concerned is he because he's just like maybe other Jews who didn't observe the law perfectly you know or does this tell us something about um, the beginning of Peter's liberation from the Old Testament law or not is he already seeing anything it doesn't quite look like it because when we see the vision he's very adamant he says Lord I haven't eaten any of those foods I wouldn't touch any of that stuff so it just may be, Peter was not a Pharisee. The Pharisees, you know, were very scrupulous scrupulous about these things. So it may be that he was just not as scrupulous as Pharisees were about, you know, eating with it, uh, lodging with a tanner and so forth. Um, it, it's difficult to know. Um, anyway, it's kind of an interesting preface to the fact that here is, here is Peter eating with someone, staying with someone who's going to be, would be considered unclean, and ultimately, this is going to lead to the Cornelius incident. So we see the the conversion of Cornelius at Caesarea. This is the main event here in this section, 932, particularly, is the conversion of Cornelius. And I quote here from Longnecker here, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, as I say, this incident is very important to Luke, which can be <clears throat> seen in part by the amount of space he devotes to it. 66 verses in all. That is, from the end of chapter 10 
chapter 9 through chapter 10, um, up through, you know, even including chapter 11, Peter's report, he devotes a lot of space in the book of Acts to reporting about Cornelius. So this is a very important instance. <clears throat> Longnecker says, this is, uh, he's a, written a commentary on Acts, he says, Four matters in the account of Cornelius's conversion receive special emphasis, and in turn, they provide insight into Luke's purpose for presenting this material. The first has to do with the early church's resistance to the idea of Gentiles being either directly evangelized or accepted into Christian fellowship apart from any relationship to Judaism. So remember, these were Jews who were Christians. Remember, the early church was a Jewish church, Jews who became Christians. All the disciples were Jews. These early people at Jerusalem were Jews. And they still don't understand about what's the relationship of Christianity to the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law forbids any contact with Gentiles, mainly because Gentiles were considered unclean because they didn't observe the food laws. They didn't observe uh, the, the laws of clean and unclean animals and so forth like this. I mean, I don't think an Orthodox Jew would ever come to your house and, you know, for eating or anything. If you, if you had an Orthodox Jew living next to you and you said, come over and have a meal with us, they would never do it. Because you would have a contaminated kitchen, you wouldn't have observed the laws of food and so forth. So the, the, one of the main reasons was that the food laws were a big obstacle here. And so uh, even though Jesus, Acts 1-8, member Jerusalem... Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That didn't seem to sink in very much, did it? It didn't seem to. It took Stephen to get the gospel to Samaria, you remember? And that was quite a task. Then Peter and John come up there. So these guys aren't rushing out to the Gentiles here. And there's this uh, this this resistance. And I you know, cite some verses here because later on, uh, Peter's going to have some resistance. When he comes back to Jerusalem in chapter 11, they're going to say, hey, Peter, we heard that you went to a house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. What are you doing, man? You, you, you really broke the law here and all this. So first, there's this resistance, and, and Luke is going to show how this was overcome, at least in Peter's life. Second is a demonstration that it was God himself who introduced the Gentiles into the church and miraculously showed his approval. And Peter's going to mention that, and we're going to see that. Peter is sort of forced, isn't he? He's sort of forced to go to Caesarea, and he's sort of forced into this thing. And he's going to use, and he's going to say God was behind this. Third, the third is that it was not Paul, but Peter, the leader of the Jerusalem church apostles, who was the human instrument in opening the door to the Gentiles. The fourth has to do with the Jerusalem church's subsequent acceptance of, of a Gentile's conversion to Jesus the Messiah, apart from any allegiance to Judaism, for God had obviously validated it. We'll see that in chapter 11 when Peter comes back. It says, when they heard this, they had no further objection to praise God, saying, so, even, so then even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, that, that's a big problem, as we'll see when we get there. Well, let's look at Cornelius's vision. Cornelius is up here in Caesarea, also on the coast. Um, at 
Cornelius, there was a man named, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. As I say here, uh, Caesarea was built by Herod the Great. Remember, he was the king of Judea when Christ was born uh, at the time of Christ. Herod the Great, between uh, 22 and 10 B.C., or maybe 9 B.C. So he built this, named it after his patron, the Emperor Augustus Caesar. So Herod the Great got his power, and his family got their power, and they ruled Judea because of the emperor, the first Roman emperor, Augustus Caesar. The city was about 30 miles north of Joppa. We can see there, it's about 30 miles. And about 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It was the Roman capital of the province of Judea. It's hard to see here, but... They don't have they don't have any provincial lines, but actually the province of Judea starts up here and kind of comes down and comes this way and expands out here. I should have a map of the province, but Judea, Caesarea is actually in the province, the Roman province of Judea, and it's the capital, not Jerusalem. Caesarea is the is the capital, and that's where the Roman governor had his his uh, his residence there. In Caesarea, he didn't have. Now, when he came to Jerusalem, he would often stay in Herod's place there in Jerusalem. But uh, the Roman governor Pilate, at the time of Jesus, that he wasn't. That wasn't his residence there in Jerusalem. He was there in Jerusalem, but his official residence was in Caesarea. Later in the Book of Acts, Paul is taken to Caesarea as a prisoner uh, to see the Roman governors there, Festus and Felix, remember, and so forth. So, uh, here is a Caesarea along the coast here, right along here. And there's quite a bit of excavation in Caesarea. Was to call reference to the Herod's Promontory Palace. Herod's Palace was built here out like on a little, a little peninsula that comes out here. That's a later Crusader castle. They've uh, discovered a hippodrome here, that, and there's a theater here. And I'll show you some pictures of that. And they still have activities there. You didn't ever go to an activity at the theater, did you? But you went to the theater, obviously, and so forth. So you've been to the theater. Um, so this was the port for... Uh, Jerusalem, and from what I've understood, most of this was at one time above water, or a good part of it was above water. They've done a lot of underwater excavations here, but this was the port where ships would come in. If you were coming to Palestine, if you were coming to Jerusalem, you would come into this port. Here's that palace here, and there's the theater, which they've restored. Uh, done a lot of restoration on that. There's the palace, the theater, the stadium there. There's the palace remains. Here's what probably what that looked like from at least descriptions from Josephus and others. Is now later on in the Book of Acts, Acts 21, we'll see Paul is brought there. 
and he's put underneath there. There's kind of a jail there underneath the palace. There's the uh, theater there. Caesarea. So we're told that there was this man named Cornelius there, a centurion. I say here sometimes referred to as officers, but more like a non-commissioned officer. Somewhat similar to a master sergeant, maybe in today's army. I say maybe a warrant officer. It's hard to get, we don't have an exact equivalent to rank, you know, to, to our armies and so forth, but something like that. Supposedly commanded about 100 soldiers. And Cornelius was a member of this Italian regiment. Uh, say here, a regiment or cohort was a tenth of a Roman legion. Historical records about this regiment suggest that its headquarters was in Syria, which was the which was the Roman control center for the whole region. But this was probably an auxiliary force, not the regular army. Cornelius was likely a freedman. <laughs> More than 10,000 former slaves took the name when Cornelius Sulla freed them in 82 BC. So what's going on here? The Roman army had three divisions, three sections. The most elite troops were in what's called the Praetorian Guard. They were the troops that, that guarded the emperor himself. They were his own special elite force. They only had to serve 16 years, and then they could retire. Then there were the Roman legions, many of the legions, 20-some legions, at least. And they were stationed in various parts of the empire, keeping keeping control of things. The Roman legions, uh, you had to serve 20 years to retire from the Roman legions. And uh, you, uh, you had to be a Roman citizen to be in the Roman legions. But a large part of the Roman army we think of as Romans were what they call auxiliary troops, Rome had soldiers who are auxiliaries. These were people who were not Roman citizens. They were Gentiles from the various provinces. So Rome had conquered so much territory and so forth. They had conquered Palestine, Syria, and so forth. And so they would recruit people into auxiliary forces and so forth. These were the troops who were probably in Jerusalem and in Judea. Sometimes we talk about the troops there and we say... Uh, the Roman soldiers. They were Roman soldiers in the sense it was a Roman army, but they weren't the normal legionaries. The, when Herod came in and got control of Judea, he, was, he had to battle for three years from 40 B.C. to 37 B.C. He had Roman legions with him. But then the Roman legions left, and the soldiers there were these auxiliary troops recruited from the Gentile areas north of Galilee and Syria, Damascus, and places like that on the uh, various places east of the Jordan River, the capitalists, and so forth. And uh, then we see Roman legions coming back in in AD 70 to put down the Roman army. So uh, these are what are called auxiliary troops. And here's Cornelius. Cornelius was probably an auxiliary, uh, one of these auxiliary forces, not the regular army, probably a freedman, but not a Roman citizen, probably. So what happened was... uh, Rome would often free the slaves, free prisoners, and so forth. He was probably one of these. That's the general thinking. Uh, Cornelius Sulla, a famous Sulla, a famous Roman, freed about uh, ten thousand of these in eighty-two BC. So here's this man. He's uh, an army 
Roman army, but in this auxiliary troops and so forth. And uh, he and his family were devout and God-fearing. Now, this God-fearing is kind of a technical term. As I say, these God-fearers, I mentioned in verse 2, were Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel, attended the synagogue, and complied with some Jewish customs. So these were, these were Gentiles who were not full converts to Judaism. They're called in the book of Acts, people like Lydia at Philippi, they're called God-fearers often. And so they're Gentiles who believe in the God of Israel. They'll come to the synagogue. They're allowed to come to the synagogue and so forth. But the males are not circumcised. You could, as a Gentile, convert to Judaism. If you wanted to convert to Judaism, you had to go through a number of steps. Uh, You had to be instructed. You had to receive instruction from a teacher, from a rabbi. Males had to be circumcised. You had to be immersed. Jews had kind of a baptism. That's one reason, that's one of the things that points to immersion as the baptism. Jews, this baptism, this washing was in a full immersion. So you had to go to the temple, be immersed there, and offer a sacrifice in the temple. So you had to be instructed, you had to be circumcised, you had to go through this ritual cleansing in front of witnesses, and you had to offer a sacrifice in the temple if you wanted to be a full convert to Judaism. And, of course, most Gentiles wouldn't want to do that necessarily. And so they were simply God-fearers who believed in the God of Israel and so forth, complied with some custom, but not the food laws generally or anything like that. So we're told here that this man was a God-fearer, he and his family. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, verse 3, at about 3 in the afternoon... Uh, He had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. As I mentioned, three in the afternoon here, he was praying at one of the set times for prayer. So he he was conforming to some some, uh, Jewish uh, uh, ordinances. Remember, Jews prayed three times a day, morning and then in the afternoon and then in evening, night, three times a day. And so this was one of the set times for prayer, and so he's praying about that time. So he's sort of following Jewish tradition, Jewish law here. So he's praying, and he saw this angel who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The the angel answered, Uh, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So um, Joppa is about 31 miles here from uh, Caesarea, a full day's journey by horseback here. And so uh, the angel says, send to Joppa. And you're staying with this man, Simon Tanner, by the sea. I might mention here, uh, there comes sometimes some discussion here about the spiritual status of Cornelius. What exactly is he at this point? Is he a believer? 
is he a believer? Well, he's not a believer in Jesus, right? We know that. He doesn't know anything about Jesus Christ and so forth. And so, but is he somebody who was a believer before? Is he like an Old Testament believer or something? Is he already saved, but he just doesn't know about Jesus? Because this is going to come up again in Acts chapter 19. But uh, the question is, some people say, now, I've known many people who said, yes, Cornelius was already saved. He was like an Old Testament believer. He just didn't have the full truth about Jesus. And that sounds like it might be a possibility. But the text gives us a little hint that that's not the case. Even though it says his, his offerings have come up before memorial, if you'll quickly look over at chapter 11, I'll jump ahead here. In chapter 11, when Peter is coming to the house of Cornelius... And uh, in chapter 11, he comes back to Jerusalem and he's trying to explain to the people at Jerusalem what he did. He says in verse 11, Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered into the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. Verse 14, he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So it sounds like he was not saved at the time of this incident. He was a, just a God-fearer, a person who believed in the God of Judaism, but he wasn't actually a regenerate person. At least the text seemed to suggest that. So, uh, he's told to send for Simon. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Well, now we see uh, Peter's vision. As I was saying here, Peter was not by training or inclination an overly scrupulous Jew, but he was not prepared to go so far as to minister directly to Gentiles. A special revelation was necessary for that. And Luke now tells how God took the initiative in overcoming Peter's reluctance. Verse 9, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Each of these, as I say, the flat roofs, which often had a stairway on the outside of the house, and you probably went up there, he had an awning, some sort of awning out there um, to avoid the, the heat of the house, so he went up on the roof, some sort of awning, <coughs> shield against the noonday sun, and so forth, and he goes up. Verse 10, he, he became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open, and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. So this phrase, all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds, would mean both clean and unclean animals. Remember the Old Testament, Leviticus 11 especially, if you read that sometimes, you you see that God says you can't eat these kind of animals, and you can't eat these kinds, some are unclean, and so forth. So, the, the emphasis here that Luke is telling us is that all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds, just all kinds of clean and unclean animals. Then a voice told Peter, get up, kill, get up Peter, kill, and eat. 
Verse 14, Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. It's a safe ceremonial law forbade the eating of certain animals. So, uh, I was saying, I'm not sure how scrupulous Peter was. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, but he says he had apparently observed the food laws. That's one thing he, he had done. He had observed the food laws and he hadn't eaten the unclean animals, apparently. Verse 15, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. I say here, verse 15, Jesus had already done away with these ceremonial restrictions, but apparently the disciples never grasped the significance of his teaching. I think I, I think we looked at this passage before one time, but remember this was an interesting comment in Mark chapter 7 during Jesus' ministry. Jesus lived under the period of the Old Testament law, but there's a transition, and the God of the law here is speaking, and uh, Luke has this comment that he gives. This is, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Luke has, I'm sorry, Mark has this comment he gives in Mark chapter 7, which is rather illuminating about what Jesus was doing. Remember, this is the question of food that defiles uh, Mark chapter 7 verse 1 the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and they saw that his disciples were eating with defiled hands, unwashed hands and so forth and they were worried about contamination, breaking the food laws and so forth and they asked him don't your, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands and uh he goes on to speak to this issue and so forth. And he says in verse 14 of that chapter 7, Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Sure it can. Leviticus 11 says it can, Jesus. <laughs> Leviticus 11 says it can defile. It certainly does say that. No, Jesus says no. Something is changing here. So we're in a transition here, aren't we? From Jesus, God is, is giving some different direction here, isn't he? Rather, it's what comes out of a person. You know, in a sense, food can't really ultimately defile. Yeah, you're breaking a ceremonial law, but it can't really change you as a person, can it? You don't, become a, you don't change your sinful nature by what you eat or what you drink or something like that. It doesn't change your sinful nature. After he left the crowd and entered his house, the disciples said, Are you so dull? He said, he's talking about this. Don't you know that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them really ultimately? And uh, for it doesn't go into the heart, and that's what really counts. Food can't really defile the heart. For it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach, and then out of the body. And then, in parentheses, the NIV has it, because we believe this is Mark's inspired comment on Jesus, what Jesus was saying. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So Jesus is setting the stage for this transition, for the ending of the Mosaic dispensation and the beginning of a new dispensation and so forth. And uh, the Lord is trying to convince Peter here that that has changed. And Peter says no. And the, the voice says, don't call anything unclean. This happened three times, verse 16. Uh, and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. 
And then we see verses 17 through 23a, uh, messengers from Cornelius arrive at Joppa. While Peter is wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius stopped, found out where Simon's house was, and, uh, excuse me, sent by Cornelius, found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, verse 19, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you are looking for. Why have you come? Verse 22. The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guest. I say here, apparently Peter realized that the vision of the animals and the sheep had more far-reaching implications than just the food laws. If the food laws were no longer valid, there was no reason to avoid social contact with Gentiles. In verse uh, 28, Peter will say, you're well aware that it's, it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. And the main reason is because the problem of the food laws. Peter invites these Gentiles in to be overnight guests. It was largely because of their lack of scruples in food matters that Gentiles were ritually unsafe, uh, ritually unsafe people for a pious Jew to meet socially. One Jewish writing of the time says, Separate yourself from the nations and eat not with them and do not according to their works and become not their associate for their works are unclean and all their ways are a pollution and an abomination and uncleanness. Well, then we see uh, Peter's reception by Cornelius. Verse 23b. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the disciples from Joppa went along. So they go from Joppa up to Joppa to uh, Caesarea there. Yes. So this passage, just as a uh, not the most important, well, besides the missionary emphasis, but uh, this passage would be a proper uh, text to use to show that that we're uh, entirely free to eat pork. Sure. Okay. <coughs> I mean, it's, it's it's easier to go to Romans 14, maybe, or you know, something like that, probably, because. Paul makes it pretty clear that meat is not an issue at all, you know. But yeah, certainly this would be this would be true. This would be very clear. Peter's being told that that there's nothing unclean about any kind of food or any kind of meat or anything like that. Um, yeah. Could I, one other thing, uh, maybe getting ahead of it, but uh, one thing I, I kind of wondered about for a long time, and that is the matter of blood and meat. Now, Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, seems to indicate that as far as a, a rule that still applies to the church, is that the church is not allowed to eat uh, blood and food. Well, that's a, that's a good 
that's a good point. That's a good point. He's he's bringing up Acts chapter 15 when the Jerusalem Council sets out some guidelines and they impose them upon Gentiles. Right, and they said this is the whole Holy Spirit. Yeah, don't do these things. Yeah, don't do these things. I got a good answer for that. What? <laughs> but you want me to give it now? Okay. <laughs> but the, the question comes is, it, and, and, and make it even worse, make it even more difficult, that would seem to conflict with Paul says what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Because Paul pretty says in 8, 9, and 10 that you can eat anything. Just don't ask any questions. Just go to the meat market and buy whatever you want to. You can buy whatever. It looks like that what's, what's going on there in, um, in Acts 15, if you look at all those things, he ties... You know, uh, meat, uh, eating this blood, drinking this blood, and uh, he, he ties that with with uh, with going to the temples in Acts chapter fifteen. In other words, if you read if you read that prescription there in fifteen, he has mentions four things uh, in the letter. Well, they mention them earlier, and then they have the letter. Um. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Now, what is that? That's eating meat in the pagan temples as a part of a religious ceremony. That's that same word in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Paul is talking about meat offered to idols. So what Paul is forbidding in 1 Corinthians 8 is not the eating of meat, but eating meat in the temple. When you go to the, when you go to the temple and take part in these ceremonies, you're taking part in idolatry, and you're eating meat in conjunction with that. That apparently is the same thing that's going on here. What they're, what they're forbidding is really idolatry on the part of the Gentiles. It's, it's difficult to understand, but in a place like Corinth, people went to the temple just like we go to McDonald's or somewhere. I mean, they just went all the time. And the reason they went to the temple is because there weren't any restaurants in the ancient world they went to the temple. They 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 celebrated birthdays. At, I'm talking about the local temples in Corinth. So you, if you could you could uh, you could have a birthday party for your child at the temple. All kinds of social events were at the temple. But part of that going to the temple was you made a sacrifice to the god. You ate meat in in honor of the god and so forth. And what Paul is condemning is the idolatry associated with that. It's not the meat itself. It's not the meat that's the problem, but it's going to the temple and it's the idolatry. And he calls that meat offered to idols, idol of futon. So that's what I think we have here. It's the same thing. They say, uh, you are abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and meat of strangled animals, and from sexual morality. In conjunction with the temples, like at Corinth, a lot of sexual morality. That was part of the worship and so forth. So it looks like what they're laying down here is not in contradiction to what Paul is saying, but it's just saying, you Gentiles have got to abstain from that idolatry in the temples, which involved drinking blood and all these other kind of things. Okay? I, I've got... Well, that's drinking blood out and out. Yeah. Okay, so... so uh, and It's part of an idolatrous practice is what they're talking about. Like Chinese. What's that? Chinina stuck blood soup. It's made out of dark blood. Oh, okay. We're not supposed to eat that. 
Never mind. I don't, I don't think there's any particular prohibition about blood here. I think this is blood associated with an idolatrous practice. You know, I, I think that's what's going on here in First Corinthians, in Acts chapter 15. There was health issues with some of that stuff too. Like, they're like, so if you well, want to eat your steak, water, sure, sure. I think they might have come from one group. Yeah. Some, some people that are drinking blood. Yeah. A lot of Polish friends yeah. In other words, I don't think this is this. I don't think this by itself in Acts 15 is a prohibition, particularly about blood, but it's blood associated with uh, the idolatrous practice, uh, having idols, worshiping idols, and so forth in the temple. That's what I think is going on here. Okay, I don't want to I want go ahead. Going, 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 but but I I kind of wondered because you know when you buy meat you. And you buy meat, and you see a, a little bit of red. Yeah, that, you know the juice. The thing is, though, is is uh, I mean, if, at least they made an attempt because don't when a cow or a steer gets slaughtered, it gets put upside down, and the slit and it runs out yeah. of the. Ne- I'm sorry, but you know that's what yeah. happens when they get slaughtered and, and the blade. But the the blood. It's not 100%, but as long as you attempt to drain the blood out, of the meat's okay, right? Well... Or did, or did or does halal and kosher demand a 100% draining of the blood, or is that... No, I don't think any of that applies to us at all. Personally, I don't think any of that applies to us. See, I think this was the drinking of blood. This was, this was part of this pagan practice, going to the temple... Uh, worshiping the idol, um, drinking it, strangling of these of the sacrifice, drinking its blood. This is all part of a pagan pagan worship kind of thing. So so uh, so I don't think there is anything. Uh, I mean, uh, who wants to drink blood? But I'm just saying, I, I don't think it's actually a sin to drink blood. Okay, I'm sorry. You know, I don't think it would be actually a sin. I don't know why you want to do it. I don't know why you want to do it. I don't know why you want to do it. I would, but cultures do. Okay. You get, you get, you get. Well, it depends on why they're doing it. You know, why they were doing it. You know, why they were doing it. I don't know why they would be doing it. I don't know why you want to do it. You know, generally we don't want to drink blood and we just drain the blood out sufficiently, you know. But like you say, you can eat your steak raw. It's still, people call it bloody, you know, it's still got juice, you know, it, you can still see the red and all that kind of stuff. People want that. But I don't think, I don't think we're under a requirement, I don't think Acts 15 is talking about, you know, not eating a drop of blood, not drinking a drop of blood. That's not the point. Okay. So they're, and they're not, and they're not, and they're not uh, putting the, the Jewish kosher laws on these Gentiles, I don't think. Okay. I think they're talking about, what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, which is a combination of practices, which involve drinking blood in connection with temple worship of pagan deities. But we'll come to that maybe next semester and talk about it again. Because it is a problem in the sense it does look like they're imposing something in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul allows for, it looks like. Paul doesn't demand any special kosher draining of blood or anything. He just says buy the food in the meat market and all that. You know. So, uh, um, 
where we at here? We were drinking. We were we, we were drinking blood, weren't we? <laughs> okay. Now they're uh, hopping on the freight train or whatever up to uh, like the Caesarea. On the freight train. Okay. The freight train. All right. So uh, Acts chapter uh, ten here. Verse uh, 23b, the next day Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called them together and called together his relatives and close friends. And Peter entered the house, as Peter in the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anything impure or unclean. So when I was, verse 29, when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and remembered remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Verse 34. We see a Peter's sermon in Cornelius' house. As I say here, Peter's sermon is a summary of the apostolic teaching similar in content to his earlier sermons in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message of God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee and after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Um, As I mentioned here, under the power of the devil, I just mentioned as a side note here, is an indication that demons are under Satan's control. We talk about Satan or the devil, the fallen angel, and how that he has many angels, fallen angels, we call them demons. So this is one of the verses we correlate to get that. How do we get that? Well, we get it from this one because he says, um, he was healing all who were under the power of the devil. And so when you think about Jesus, he was not, he was casting out demons out of people and so forth. And you can look at a couple of verses here that help here too. Matthew 12, 24 But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, 
It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this fellow drives out demons. You remember, this is the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, chapter 12 there. And, uh, and the Pharisees say, this Jesus, because remember he cast the demon out of this person, this deaf and mute person, and, and he cast this demon out. And the, and the Pharisees are trying to explain this, and they say, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, and we understand clearly that's Satan, uh, that, that this fellow drives out demons. So Beelzebub or Satan is the prince, the ruler of the demons. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the devil has angels, fallen angels, who are these demons, these demons that we're talking about, and that's the same thing we see here. So the devil has fallen angels, demons, and he is the ruler of these demons. He is in control of these demons. Verse 39. Peter says, uh, We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by the witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. I mentioned here, it says, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So, while Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit came on them and the circumcised believers were astonished because they saw the same gift that had happened to them on the day of Pentecost. They saw this speaking in tongues, praising God, and so forth. As I say, these Gentiles experienced the same effects of having having received the Holy Spirit like the Jews did at Pentecost. Remember 2.1, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And later on in chapter 11 and verse 15, when Peter is repeating this, he says, as I began to speak to Cornelius and the crowd there, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. So Peter is, Peter is in chapter 11, he's saying, I couldn't do anything. This is God. Man, this is God doing this. I didn't do anything. The Holy Spirit came on these people as I was speaking. So uh, I say here, um, these Gentiles experienced the same effects, just like the Jews at Pentecost, and probably Samaritans in chapter 8. Now, I realize chapter 8, remember, did not say the Samaritans spoke in tongues and all that, but I argued that they did. I argued that was the evidence that Peter, when Peter and John laid their hands on them, we saw the evidence that they had received the Holy Spirit because they spoke in tongues, and that was evidence to Peter and John that God is accepting the Samaritans. 
And now we see the evidence that God is accepting these Gentiles. Now, this doesn't happen every time someone got saved in the book of Acts, but it was here for a particular purpose, to show Peter that God is accepting people who are Gentiles, people who are... Now, this this is not exactly a pagan Gentile, because this guy's a God-fearer. We don't really see any pagan... When I say pagan, I mean somebody who has no connection with Judaism at all. We'll see that under Paul's ministry. But here we see uh, people who's, at least who's a Gentile, not Jewish, no Jewish blood or anything like that, not a Jewish proselyte. Many people think Peter is kind of using the keys of the kingdom to open the door of the Gentiles. He opened the door at Jerusalem, the Jews, you know. He speaks to the Samaritans. Peter and John lay their hands on them. And now he's the man who comes and uh, preaches and the Gentiles these Gentiles speak in tongues praising God and so forth and this is interesting here it's, it's helpful you know because notice that there was no laying on, on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit so every experience is not different the, the book of Acts is a transitional book you know this is we, we can't we, we don't look to this book to get our everyday ordinary experiences these are extraordinary things here we're looking at the epistles to find out what is ordinary and everyday but remember in Samarita, Samaria, they received, they believed, they were saved. And I said they were indwelt by the Spirit, I argued, remember? I said they were indwelt, but what we didn't see was the outward manifestation of the Spirit. That was withheld until Peter and John came. And I argued the reason it was withheld so that so that the Samaritans wouldn't be able to say, hey, we got, we got it, we didn't have any help from the Jews, because they had this distinction, this separation, this division. So the Samaritans wouldn't be able to to uh, say that we're we, we have our own you know like they had their own temple you know we have our, we have our own gospel no they were they're connected to Jews the Jews by Peter and John coming and laying hands on them but here there's no hands laid on them and they receive the Holy Spirit uh, and then Peter will say surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So it's just helpful to remember here and see in this experience, we can learn that these people heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, and they received the Holy Spirit. They didn't pray any prayer. You don't have to pray a prayer to be saved. Now, it's good to pray a prayer. It's good to pray you know, and pray to God and so forth, and we encourage people to do that. But being saved is believing, repenting and believing, isn't it? <laughs> you repent and you believe. Most often we do that in prayer. We, we you know, we, we, we want people to remember the event, especially, you know. But who knows when a person is exactly saved, you know? I mean, a person may be sitting in the pew when the pastor preaches, and he'll say, you can, you can right now, you can trust Christ, you know? And then they may come to his office. They may already be saved. They may not be. <laughs> you know, it's hard to tell sometimes. So he's going to take them through the gospel step by step, kind of nail it down and pray and make sure they understand. But, you know, sometimes you don't know the exact moment of regeneration. They may have been saved right there in the pew. So sometimes it's like that. There's, so there's no need necessarily to pray. It's good to pray. There's no need to be baptized here, clearly. These people received the Holy Spirit and they had not been baptized. So baptism is not 
required for regeneration is not part of the gospel. All right, we've got to stop here. We've gone over, and we'll pick this up next week. All right, thanks.